Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. And let me tell you why. Maria Teresa Kumar, the founder and president of Voto Latino, is my guest. And that's how you pronounce it, Voto Latino. It, it's, it's nice. It's not... Voto Latino, like some xenophobes might do. Voto Latino, it's not a command. Voto Latino, that attitude is just not going to turn people out. I know what you're thinking. So far, I don't like this podcast. That, That Voto Latino thing, that just frankly makes me feel uncomfortable. And I get that. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, this is the third time Maria Teresa has done the podcast, and that's true. Well, you might be thinking then, how can you say this is a great one for a change? Aha. Maria Teresa has been compelling, brilliant, and and fascinating the last two times she's been on. It's just that I was way, way off my game in uh, those two shows. But this week, I am smoking hot, you know, for a change. And I can say that because we've already recorded the interview, and if I do say so myself, I am extremely good in this one, finally. And you know why? Because I let Maria Teresa talk. I don't impose myself in the conversation just to hear the sound of my voice like I usually do. A number of you have told me to listen to the guest and not interrupt the guest, you know, when they're trying to complete a good point. Peter, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, Al, you've you really got to be. I listened to care- Peter, and voila, we, we got a great one for a change. Maria Teresa will be on in a little bit, and you will be blown away by what Voto Latino does. Uh, they've registered 600,000 voters just this cycle, and they're still doing it in the lead up to Georgia now because a lot of Latinos, Latinx, have turned 18 since uh, November 3rd. So they're just, bam, they, they're on it. Uh, they counter information uh, that their people are hearing from the bad guys. Uh, you're a newly registered Latino. Do you know that you can just text your vote in to 555-555-VOTE? It's that easy. 
those Republican jerks. That's what they do. And, and Voto Latino tells their people, don't listen to that stuff. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to give you the impression that Republicans are all bad guys. Um, Larry Hogan, a Maryland governor, Republican. Um, Charlie Baker, Massachusetts governor, Republican. Mike DeWine, Ohio governor, uh, Republican. Uh, then there's the uh, the Lincoln Project guys, but then again, they're they're not Republicans anymore. Uh, we've had Steve Schmidt and Stuart Stevens on the podcast, and they have become disgusted uh, with the party of Lincoln becoming the party of Trump, and that's what's happened. You have this Fakakta lawsuit from the Attorney General uh, of Texas, this Paxton, and 17 other state attorneys general from Republican states want the Supreme Court to overturn the election results in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Not only do you have 17 Republican AGs, you now have over 100 Republican members of Congress who have signed on to an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, calling for the Supreme Court to reverse the elections in those four states uh, that went to Biden and just reverse the whole election uh, to Trump. Now, in their brief, the Republican AGs keep citing an analysis by statisticians that the chances of Biden winning Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia are less than one in a quadrillion. Now, I haven't checked their work, uh, but it seems like... Uh, Funny math. Let me tell you what's closer to one in quadrillion. The chances of Donald Trump being president. Now, bear with me on the math here. I mean, obviously, he is the president, so it's one in one, I guess. But let's do the math. Um, the chances of any American uh, being president is, I don't know, you got to be over 35. Let's just eliminate all women for now. So, uh, because that's what it's been so far. So let's say just one in 100 million. Now, multiply that times the chances that the worst person in the world becomes the president. Because that's what we got. You got, what are the odds of someone becoming president in America? One 100 million, say. But you got to multiply that times the number of people in the world, 7 billion, I guess. I think that's it. Because that's the chances of the worst person in the world becoming the president. So by my math, that is uh, 7 billion, which is 7 times 10 to the ninth, uh, and uh, multiply that uh, by 100 million, uh, 100 times 10 to the sixth. And what I get is uh, 7 times... Well, since 100 million is 10 to the 8th, uh, you get 7 times 10 to the 17th, which is more than a quadrillion. <laughs> I think that's 700 quadrillion. <laughs> uh, so that's the chances of Donald Trump, or rather of one individual becoming the president of the United States times 
the chances are that that person is the worst person in the world, which is what we have. So now, later in the interview with Maria Teresa, I will display a little math prowess. And I'll just give you a hint. Mean, median, mode. A couple other things to get off my uh, chest. Uh, my God, pass a COVID relief package. And don't give immunity to corporations so they can put their workers at risk. And feed people. This is sick. Chef Jose Andres uh, wrote a great op-ed in the New York Times about the need for a secretary of food, which should be really the secretary of agriculture, should be the secretary of food and agriculture. Um, but you can call it whatever you want. But we should be ashamed of ourselves. Food insecurity has tripled during COVID. People are waiting for hours and hours in line in their cars for food. This is a disgrace. You know, earlier this year, dairy farmers were dumping milk. Livestock producers were killing their animals because they couldn't get them processed. This president, uh, this country has failed in so many spectacularly unnecessary ways. I, I, I love that Tom Vilsack is going back to uh, head up agriculture, be Secretary of Agriculture. And God, we have to win Georgia January 5th. My guest next week will be D. Taylor. He heads up uh, the ground game in Georgia for Unite Here. I just spoke with him for about an hour. I did a Zoom fundraiser for Unite here, and he is inspiring. He is inspiring. And look, this isn't about persuasion in Georgia anymore. This is about turning people out. It's about turnout. And they are hitting the doors, and he tells me that normally they get 7% of the people when they knock on a door, 7% talk, talk to them. It's over 30% here. People want to talk. People are troubled. So listen, uh, you can go to alfranken.com, and we'll have a link for you to give to um, Unite here on that. Um, also, we have a link for Second Harvest, uh, my favorite food bank in Minnesota. Uh, one last thing. A, a lot of you uh, don't know this, but I'm Jewish. Uh, there, I, I said it. And uh, the Frankens are celebrating Hanukkah now, and my grandkids are getting uh, underwear, socks, and slacks, just like I did as, as a kid. It's a beautiful holiday. But as you know, uh, some very powerful people don't think so. And it's time to stop the madness. That's why my Al Franken podcast online store is offering my End the War on Hanukkah Christmas tree ornaments. Don't let Donald Trump and Sean Hannity and Jerry Falwell Jr. stop you from celebrating the Festival of Lights. The ornaments come in red and green and make a great gift for Jew and Gentile alike. So to get that ornament or any other uh, of the merchandise that we have on the Al Franken online store, go to alfranken.com. 
Okay, let's go to Maria Teresa Kumar. Uh, this one is great, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. Welcome back, Maria Teresa. This is your third time on the podcast. I am. I, my goodness. Thanks for having me back, Al. I'm doing something right. Maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say that. But uh, no, you were the first uh, podcast. That's what we call it. It's a podcast. Yeah. You were my first. And then we, we had you recently with Mark Elias, who's also a mm -hmm. three-peat. So, but it's a very, very small uh, group. It's uh, Dahlia Lithwick, uh, Andy Slavitt, you, and Mark Elias. So there you go. So, well, I'm in great company. Well, thank an you. Elite group. Thank you, Mr. Franken. <laughs> you bet. Uh, and last time we were on, it was with Mark Elias. Mm -hmm. And we were talking, of course, about the big focus was on voter suppression. And he, Mark is the Democratic election lawyer, the, the, probably the top one, and was in court a lot before the, <laughs> during the campaign and then has probably been in court the whole time battling these uh, really, really very difficult to beat election contests by <laughs> by the Giuliani team. But I have to say that Mark does all of these lawsuits with such a sunny disposition. I've never seen someone more gleeful of <laughs> going to court with Giuliani. It's wonderful. Yeah, I wonder why. I mean, <laughs> I wonder why it's like, oh, man. Yeah, he really loves a challenge. That's what makes him happy. <laughs> Are these uh, so anyway? So that was about uh, voter suppression, and that's of course of, of black and brown people mainly. And uh, today I want to talk about uh, how we did this cycle. Uh, of course, you're President Voto Latino, the founder, and 
I, you were registering people in the, in the uh, lead up to the election. And I, I want to kind of do a review of how Latinx mm-hmm. people did. And, and I also want to get into Latinx because <laughs> you're the one who dragged me into Latinx. <laughs> I dragged you into Latinx, yes. Okay. And that was the last time you were on. And I understood. I understood because Latinx is a way you would refer to, it's a plural, Latinx. Uh, That's the opinion of many Latinx. Or it's a singular going like, that is, you are Latinx, or that's a Latinx, that person's Latinx. But what I've heard since, so then I started using Latinx on, on your urging. I think almost you kind of forced me into it. I did not. You asked me, and I explained it to you. How Frank and do not remember. no revisionists. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I was easy to get to, do it. but you obviously know this that that like ten only ten percent of Latinx people know the term Latinx. This is the polling. Am I wrong about this? So Latinx is meant to be all encompassing, recognizing that not everybody identifies as um it's for the it's for the non-binary individuals right and so yeah, it's gender it's gender neutral it's gender neutral exactly go. it's gender neutral and so you have gender neutral where academics have been discovering this and you know encouraging people to use it but the fastest adopters are young progressive latinos and young people they're the ones that really embrace it and it's the older generation that is saying well i don't see myself because i've never heard of it and like everything language takes time to adapt and mold and lo and behold who does voto latino register we register young latinx voters and so who am i to tell them that they do not identify as latinx if they are telling us that yes they do and what's interesting uh about you know at least the work that we did is that we uh, set out to talk to young Latinos like we always do. And that's because, Al, as you know, you know, when Voto Latino, when we first started 16 years ago, 30,000 Latinos were turning 18 every month. Now there's a Latino that comes of age every 30 seconds. Wow. And that is immense potential power. And we set out to register half a million registered voters before the pandemic when a lot of on the ground operations closed and shuttered uh, because they just couldn't do the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ended up registering over 600,000. And you and I both know that our 600,000 are only in seven states. And it was in Florida and Texas. While we didn't do so great there, I mean, Texas, we turned purple officially. Uh, The last five remaining, we registered voters in Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. It's a pattern. Those were the last five of folks that last states that we were waiting to see if Biden was going to go to the White House. And what's really exciting about that is that it was among young Latinx voters that Biden had his highest support. 73% of young Latinos voted for Biden compared to 65% of their older generation counterpart. Uh, and they helped secure Arizona and Colorado for the Senate, but they also, you know, obviously made Georgia now uh, in play. And it was one of the reasons why I think this is, you know, what we do at Volta Latino is such a model for, you know, other generations in the Latino community is that we continue talking to Latinos after they register and even after they vote. And it's uh, through a really online media strategy. We started seeing, you know, everybody's now talking, Al, about the disinformation. We started seeing the disinformation back in 2019 and we flagged it for the powers that be. 
And so one of our strategies where we normally engage anywhere from 10 to 15 you know, Hollywood celebrities uh, and and folks, when we saw that this disinformation was a real issue, we identified over 267 influencers, people with followings, you know, like Selena Gomez, who has 62 million, but just as importantly, people who were in El Paso who had followings as small as 3,000. And we were able to feed them the real information on voting deadlines that, no, you cannot vote by, by texting in. I uh, know you cannot vote the next day after Tuesday. And uh, just general information that when, uh, you know, when President Trump claims that he gave you COVID relief, all he did was sign a check, but that money actually came from taxpayers and from Congress. And so we deployed it, understanding uh, the rumblings. And the reason we knew the rumblings was because we were talking to our audience since, you know, since long before 2016, so that when they started hearing misinformation, they would ask us, is this true? And then we were able to dig in deeper and really understand the sensibilities. And I think the biggest takeaway for the Democratic Party should be that you don't stop talking to your, to your electoral base and your potential base uh, after elections. You do not pack your bags. You have to be present in this new world order where everyone is consuming media ferociously, disproportionately online. And, and you obviously uh, just now gave us some idea about how thorough you guys are and signing up 600,000 new folks this cycle and and talking to them and using your influencers to talk to them and also the people you've uh, registered in previous cycles, right? Mm -hmm. Talking to yep, them as right. well. Does the Democratic mm -hmm. Party do a good job of this? In other words, that's what you do. Thank God that you're doing it. Georgia was so close. Arizona was so close, so it's it's very, very easy to argue that you made the difference. Nevada was so close. In Arizona, we did incredibly well, right, with Latino vote. Not so well in Nevada. I want to kind of go these state by state yeah. and area by area. And, of course, I, I'll, I'll do Miami-Dade maybe a little later because that got a lot of focus, and that was, that was about Biden being a socialist or— uh, maybe a communist because a public option <laughs> is socialism, right. you know. And but uh, this is the thing. But in Florida, in particular, I'll share with you when we said when I shared with you that we had seen disinformation bubbling up. This was in March of 2019, but we had seen that message long before. And this is where the Democrats, as a party, has to get become much more sophisticated. Trump is deploying the Karl Rove strategy that got Bush into the White House, meaning he doesn't need all African Americans and he doesn't need all Latinos. Uh, he doesn't need the whole Jewish community. He just needs to skim off the top and either having them vote for him or thinking that both parties are exactly the same, so they stay home, which is another form of suppression, right? And so it would happen in Miami-Dade I will tell you, we would get funding from individuals and they'd say, I want it to go to Florida. And I, every single time a good conscience says, Florida is practically a lost cause. I would encourage you to invest elsewhere. But if you're telling us Florida, let's go. You know, but I was, I always had that disclaimer because I knew how hard it was because once you have this disinformation so much embedded in someone's psyche, you just need to do a lot of work that Biden started out, sadly, already behind the eight ball on that. Well, let's let's talk about that disinformation. So we'll go to Miami-Dade because obviously there are a lot of people in Miami-Dade of Cuban descent. And I guess this communist socialist thing uh, would resonate with people who were from Nicaragua, say, or Venezuela, mm -hmm. right? Is that mm -hmm. sort of yeah. 
That's right. The, the playbook there. Yeah, it was Venezuela. But well, this is what was interesting. Every single Latin American country has had a fight against guerrillas, right? For with the exception, I'd say, of Brazil. Is Brazil considered Latin America? I just, that's that's another thing I want to talk about. Like, that's an ex- existential question for everybody. So I can tell you that when we did it, when we do census work, most people would say, "Well, you know, Brazil's not Latin America." I said, "It is Latin America. You just have to, you know, message them differently." And for redistricting, everybody wants to be able to figure out how to, you know, talk to them. Um, but they are they. You have to unpack because they a very speak Portuguese. Way. Yep. And uh, I've been thinking, what's Hispanic? What's Latino? Now, Hispanic is speaks Spanish. So Brazilian may be Latino, but not Hispanic? Correct. Wow. How sophisticated am How sophisticated. I? You are so good, Al. I mean, you are. I, I need to get you on the road. <laughs> okay. Oh, you're. You're pandering. I mean, you're, you're <laughs> blowing smoke up my ass. But okay, let's keep going. We're in Miami-Dade. We're talking oh, Miami. about every... So in other words, uh, Che Guevara is a uh, is is kind of a figure in all of Latin America. Right, exactly. And you have the Shining Path in Peru. You had FARC and ELN in Colombia. So anti-communist resonates with Latina, Latino, Latinx... All those people. <laughs> all those people. All those people. In, in, in <laughs> I appreciate your, your level of dis- uh, sensitivities as well. Oh, so, that's sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Burn. <laughs> no. Uh, um, but so, but this is but this is the challenge, and this is where I had encouraged the campaign to really lean into is that if we're honest, whether you were you fled communist. Cuba or socialist Venezuela or democratic Colombia, the reason that people fled was not was not necessarily the the government itself. It's the guise of the aspiration of that government. But really, what people were fleeing, have fled is the vast rampant corruption that is happening in these countries. So even Colombia, that was never run by a communist or socialist. It was always under the guise of a democratic government. In fact, it's considered the second largest democracy, second only to America, to the United States. Colombia? And yet, Colombia, yeah, because it was, but it was, I could tell you, I mean, my family left Colombia because it was, it was just a semblance of a democracy, but it is, it, it is now no longer a failed state, but it was all on the verge of it. And it was vast corruption that has, you know, hindered that, that country's growth. Okay, so let's go back to Miami-Dade and this uh, Bush-Rove thing of skimming off the top. Now, George W. Bush was for immigration. I mean, that is, I think, a slightly different model than Trump's. That's kind of what the, I would argue, was the proposition from Florida from the very beginning. It was more to to neutralize and to just skim off the top, right? And so it was really the gains that he made that Trump made in Miami Dade County that put him over the top. Otherwise, it would have been more neutral. And people were more, I would say, more attuned to accepting these anti-socialist messages coming out of the Trump campaign. And at the same time, you have anti-immigrants people in power. And it's not Trump. But it is the Joe Arpaios and the 
and the Brewers in Arizona. You had the Sharon Ingalls in uh, Nevada. You had the Trancados in Colorado. You have uh, 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 you have Greg Abbott in Texas, and the same thing for Georgia and North Carolina. And that gives you the perfect storm. It was my experience. I grew up in California right when we were at a tipping point of having young Latinos and Asian Americans coming of age for the first time. And you had Pete Wilson that helped pass Proposition 187, the original Show Me Your Paper laws. And the chill that it put on my family and in the community at large, where all of a sudden our neighbors felt that it was okay to you know, to be hostile. Uh, when I was growing up in Sonoma, the town next door in Napa had uh, the national skinhead rally marching up and down, right? And I would, it was not unusual to go up to a stop sign and see the person next to you with a big fat Confederate uh, sticker on their bumper. It was, it was a very different moment. And so when I was growing up, I encouraged my family to become U.S. citizens and register to vote. And I had that conversation just like millions of my peers did. And that's what flipped California blue. And that's what happened in Colorado, what's happening in Arizona, what happened in Nevada, what's happening in Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, it happened, and in Texas. Florida is not the same. In Florida, you don't have that anti-immigrant backlash. And so people have a different life experience. I grew up in, you know, as a Colombian in rural California during Pete Wilson. My cousins who grew up in Miami had a very different life experience and quite frankly, a very different worldview because they didn't have that hostility of an environment when they were growing up. It seems to me though, I mean, like Texas, let's take Texas. So Texas Mm -hmm. was Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so what is the percentage of the population of Texas that is Hispanic? You're sitting down, it's almost 51%, but they're not all of voting age. Okay. But it seems to me that is there a feeling among Texas Latinx that that they're kind of the majority, not the majority, but they're part of Texas. They're Texas, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to, say, in uh, Georgia or in Nevada. Yeah, I think I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I think that in, in Texas, even Longoria always says, you know, my family didn't move the border. The border moved us. <laughs> right. right? right. Like, she's always been there. Right. Yeah, we, <laughs> so, we took um, it from Texas. Right. From Mexico. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, from Mexico. Right. So. So, yes, I think there's different sensibilities. But you also have uh, a state that has historically done a marvelous job with voter suppression. And so in 2016, Texas was the dead last voting state for about 25 years, basically since um, since Ann Richards. And then in 2018, it went from dead last to 41st when it came to, to voting. And when it came this time around to early voting, Texas became number one in early voting. And we saw a Voto Latino uh, that we're excited about, we saw a 600% increase in Latino youth voting. That's huge. Now, is it, you know, did it flip the state? No. But did it make it purple? Absolutely. Because the only thing coming into voting age populations are young people in Texas, right? And so they're, and they're very much aligned with progressive values. And what I would encourage the Democratic Party and the progressive movement to do is to continue cultivating that power uh, because it is teetering on turning blue, And not just blue, but bright blue. When you ask young Latinos in Texas and young people in general in Texas what they care about, uh, prior to the pandemic, it was healthcare, gun reform, 
the environment, and immigration in a red state. And so there just is an alignment of opportunity, but it means that you have to, I mean, we've been in Texas since 2010 because we were seeing the demographics, we were seeing an increase in anti-immigrant legislators coming into office and that sort of thing. And so the work is not small, but it, but we need to be patient to cultivate a group of Americans that don't necessarily identify with themselves in another party, but if they don't have the understanding of what makes you different, they're, they'll sit it out. Now, my understanding is, is that uh, we did not do as well with uh, Latinx people along the Rio Grande. In the, in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're about 15% of the whole Texas population. I will also share with you that it was the first time since Clinton uh, and Obama that the actual presidential candidate didn't go down to the Rio Grande Valley. And it was the first time that you had defund the police in an area that relies heavily on you know, def- a combination of defund the police and a combination of we're going to get rid of oil, uh, traditional oil refineries and so on and so forth. Those are the two highest paying jobs for those folks on the border. And so in the absence of not having a conversation with the candidate, Obama went down there, Clinton went down there. They adored Clinton and still do. Um, there was a vacuum to be left, right? It was, and it wasn't for lack of trying at VL. We, we were flagging what we were seeing, but we, we need to take this part seriously when there's so much opportunity left on the table of enfranchisement. I mean, these are also the folks that are disproportionately getting really hurt by COVID. And when you say Texas are getting ravaged by COVID, it's the Rio Grande Valley where they have the highest incidences of, uh, of deaths, sadly enough. Okay, we're going to go to a quick break now. We'll be right back with Maria Teresa Kumar, uh, the president of Voto Latino. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. We're talking to Maria Teresa Kumar, uh, president of Voto Latino. And when I say we're talking uh, to Maria Teresa, it's me. Well, let's go to some states we won. Now, you guys did really well in Arizona, right? Yes. No, yeah. I mean, overall, what we're, 
40% of the folks that we registered and that we mobilized, because we identified 3.5 million who had basically sat it out in 2016, 40% of the people that voted early had sat it out in 2016. So this this could safely say that this made the difference there because it was so narrow. And, and Nevada was very close. Uh, and I heard this from Harry Reid pretty early on that this was going to be dicier than we, we had thought because everyone kind of going into the cycle said, oh, Nevada's blue. Mm-hmm. And I heard it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that, that, need, that needed help. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, in Nevada, you know, we registered 22,000. And tax in Arizona, we registered 67,000. Uh, Georgia, we registered uh, 36,000. These are all margins where he ended up winning by less than 20,000 votes, right? So when you start putting those types of you know points on the board, and we encouraged people to vote early. So 30% of, of people in the, in that we registered voted early, which is also a big deal. Psychologically, it encourages other people in the community who might have trepidations about voting, that if their neighbors are doing it, then they should too. And then it also helps obviously meet the, you know, feed the news cycle that people are voting and they're enthusiastic. And it also gives, generates that kind of, that type of excitement. And of the people we registered, 54% of them were new voters. Also, also, you don't have to keep track of them. Once someone's voted, right. you don't have to mm-hmm. you don't have to bug them to vote. Right, exactly. And so it allows us to shore up our resources so that we can focus on the people that haven't. Yeah, I've been I've been through a few campaigns, and that's you a get big it. Deal. <laughs> Getting the vote? Would you vote already? So we don't have to bug you anymore. So we can focus on others. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. So we basically you immediately the moment you vote that we could we see it and then we're able to again expend resources on others and or expand it. Right. So in this case, we had identified um, 3.4 million because people were voting early. We were able to ad- add an additional 300,000 individuals that uh, met certain criteria so that we could bother them. Right. So in total, our universe, we helped mobilize over 3.7 million early votes. Okay, let, let's stop talking about Voto Latino for a second and talk about the rest of the Democratic Party. Where does the rest of the Democratic Party fall short? Because I have a feeling that, thank God for you, and thank God for Voto Latino, but can you give advice to the Democratic Party as a whole on what it should be doing and what these campaigns should be doing, these national campaigns and, my God, local campaigns? I mean, in Minnesota, we have a very large Latinx community who work a lot in meatpacking plants, right? Mm-hmm. So the populations of, uh, you know, Wilmer, and which is the Genio t- turkey plant, and uh, uh, Austin, which has the Hormel plant, these are, you know, y- you go all over uh, south central Minnesota and I would go very often to uh, Catholic churches, to services that were all in Spanish, mm-hmm. and I had nothing to look at. I mean, all I could do is look at Jesus because I'm Jewish. <laughs> so I would look at. I was got fascinated with the depiction of Jesus, mm-hmm. which is I was when Jesus. I would have loved to have been in your head during that. By the way, <laughs> well, here's what was in my head: Does Jesus have a six pack? <laughs> And then, you know, it's all in Spanish. I don't know what they're saying. So I got a lot of time to think. And I'm thinking, like, could Jesus have been fat? I know he walked a lot, so he was probably in good shape. 
Mm-hmm. But he could mm-hmm. make anything he wanted out of the food. He could make loaves <laughs> and the fishes. He could make, I would think, fish into a pork roast. I, I just, I'm thinking, like, is it possible that the historic Jesus was very fat? <laughs> this is what I'm thinking of while I'm in a Spanish language Catholic service. <laughs> so you asked. Yeah, no, I was curious. I really, I, I, I didn't see it going there, to be honest. So thank you. <laughs> That's why uh, I got paid a lot uh, to write comedy. Because <laughs> that's, that's what I thought of. Could, well, let's see. What would a fat Jesus, what would that sketch look like? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I, I, no, I, I think I would I'm sorry, say, Catholics. I'm yeah, sorry, no, Christians. I, I don't know. I think that someone that, I don't, I'm going to refrain. Um, so <laughs> probably a good idea for you. Yeah, probably yep, would yep, have been yep. a good idea for me to refrain. <laughs> um, so where were we? <laughs> oh, I don't know. We're, <laughs> I think, uh, uh, politics. We're about <laughs> voting and winning. Okay, so the in in southern Minnesota and like central Minnesota, you know, almost invariably the best restaurant in town is a Mexican restaurant. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and everybody goes there. And uh, but we can't we, we don't turn out that vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, even Wisconsin. Yeah. Wisconsin has the same thing. I think this is this is what we've been. Saying a lot at Voto Latino. I mean, Voto Latino, we happen to register voters, but our job really is to market democracy every single day. Uh, and we try to get young Latinos specifically because we know that 90 percent of them are U.S. born. Uh, and sadly, only eight out of our 50 states require civic education to graduate from high school. And if they are first-generation Americans, they're not getting civic education anywhere. And so Voto Latino, we fill that gap. And if you were to ask me what is it that the Democratic Party needs to do is that they need to have a strategy of engagement that we are increasing that electoral tent and inviting people who don't know the system into the system of democracy because 99% of the time they're aligned with democratic values. They're aligned with access to healthcare, with free stellar public education. They are aligned with, with unions. They're aligned with the fundamentals of what the democratic party espouses. And what the challenge has been, and this is, I've heard this for so many years now is that it's almost an either or, right? That it's either let's maintain the, the, the consistent voter, and we'll, we'll expend the extra money to bring in more voters to the tent. And by that math, you're going to have a declining Democratic Party because the growth in America happens to be through youth and two thirds of them happen to be youth of color and a whole quarter of them are Latinos. Right. So it is, you know, I'm sorry, 33 percent of those youth are Latinos. So you leave opportunity on the table when you only focus on the Latino vote, for example, in the California or even in Florida, because the fastest demographic of Americans are Latinos in all pockets of America. I would love to pick your brain about doing because I know you, you. How many states did you say? Nine states you were in. We were in seven. We were in seven. 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 Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're in seven states, but uh, Minnesota isn't one of them. Of course not. But I would love to pick your brain about Minnesota because, um, by all rights, we should be doing well in rural Minnesota because of things like Medicaid expansion, also what 
Trump did in his trade war that hurt farmers so much. And we actually did worse. And I do think, so this is a side You guys should be crushing it. Yeah, no, but you should be, I mean, the Democratic Party should be crushing it because when it comes to issues, and this is where what folks don't get is that Latinos um, are the lowest purveyors of government resources, but they deeply believe in the role of government in their lives. Let me ask you where, because uh, this is something I've been focusing on, which is, and it really does affect rural Minnesota and rural areas, which is where people get their information. Mm, yep. Is that a challenge for you? Or are you seeing something that we're not seeing? Yeah, no, it's a huge challenge. And I think that one of the, so we started, I think I shared with you, we started really paying attention to uh, disinformation because we started seeing the Trump campaign slamming my own Voto Latino staff with disinformation ads, right? And that's and this was this was early. This was, I would say, 2018 or so that we started seeing it. And if they're hitting up my team uh, because they fit a profile, and in this case, he was a, a he, this was on his Facebook. He was AOC, loved Medicare, loved the new, Green New Deal, and all of a sudden he started getting ads from Trump campaign talking about the about socialism in Spanglish, perfectly done. And I was like, if they're hitting him, they're hitting everybody, right? Like that's my sure. interpretation. And so we, we started flagging it. And that's one of the reasons why we trained and identified over 261 influencers that were a, had small followings such as 3000 in El Paso so that they can basically take the information that we needed them, their audiences to know to say, look, no, you can't, you, you can't vote by text. No, Trump didn't sign those checks. But it was we needed to be in those in people's most intimate feeds, whether it was Instagram, whether it was Twitter, whether it was Facebook, uh, because we knew that this was this was what the other side was doing very effectively. And what the Democratic Party really needs to figure out is that it has to, one, work with Facebook, because while Facebook was finding a lot of the disinformation in English, it wasn't flagging it in Spanish or any other language for that matter, right? So that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So you so people thought that they were getting real information, but it wasn't it wasn't like, hey, check out our election center here in Spanish, right? Um, and a lot of these groups are done undetected under WhatsApp and closed face groups. Facebook groups. I will share with you, I've been doing this work for 16 years. And for the very first time, when the woman that was running against Donna Shalala was posting stuff for the very first time, I had family in Colombia saying, hey, you better watch out because she's very aligned with the ultra right here in Colombia. I had never received that kind of message. But it made me realize that the information that immigrant communities are receiving is not just contained to American networks, but they're receiving an inundation of bad information from the outside. I'm fascinated with this. I can talk to you about this. Stephanie Shriak and I talk about this all the time. I'm fascinated because I think if you were to ask me, like, what is our, our, you know, the, the disruptor when it comes to our democracy, more so than Trump, it's the peddling of the disinformation where people don't have the, the digital literacy of consumption to understand what is true and what is not. And a perfect example, you know, the Georgia election is coming up and the fact that the RNC chair is hearing back the disinformation that their own, you know, Republicans have absorbed saying, well, I'm not going to vote in the Georgia runoff because you already told me it was rigged. That's real. That's a problem. These two universes of information, 
is the problem, one, if if not the problem facing this country and maybe the world. I, I just had Tim Kendall, who was one of the uh, founders of Facebook or one of the early employees who developed their uh, monetization system, which is advertising, which means get people to be on as much as possible so we can, they'll consume as much advertising as possible. How do we do that? And the, the algorithms uh, figure out each individual what they respond to, and a lot of people respond to more and more radically hateful information. So it's a huge problem. And that is one where I will share, we're not ready for, the, de- the Democratic Party is just not ready for. I will share with you, I was talking to to a senator and they're like, yeah, we really love the way Voltazino did influencers. So I want you to come in and brief us on that. And I was like, that's not the strategy, actually. You know, like the strategy is actually taking what happened to Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton, where he was taken down by a extreme right publication that was functioning as the guise of the local newspaper. I see. Stockton, California. It's in the valley there. It's a big agricultural center, right? Mm-hmm. And so the local newspaper shuttered and this right-wing organization popped up and dedicated three years of just posting these terrible memes. But they would in, what they do is really clever. They basically, it, it's kind of like Breitbart, right? They give, they provide real news with just extreme news. Mm-hmm. And Michael Tubbs is an up and coming, he's the mayor of Stockton. He's an up and coming next generation of what the progressive movement will, I think, is starting to look like. So they targeted like him. In a, in a brutal way. Mm-hmm. But, I w- but I would actually venture to say that he was a pilot for what we should expect of this disinformation spread. And the democratic apparatus does not quite understand it. We were able to see it firsthand up close at Voto Latino because we saw them targeting not just our staff, but our volunteers and all of that. So we were able to, to best our abilities, adapt to it in short order, but it's far more complicated than even what we were doing. And so what one of the thing, charges that we're going to do, because we, are, we have a communications arm, we reach roughly about seven, eight and a half million people a month, non-election. That is one of the charges that we're going to do is actually start exploring more the, the misinformation so that we can combat it with real information. Why do these right-wing people, they somehow get it in their heads, it's fine to give people the worst misinformation possible. Yeah. It, it's fine to do that. That's a, that's what I want to do with my life. That's what I, I want to do, you know, 60 hours mm-hmm. a week or mm-hmm. 80 if I'm, you know, really, I don't want to beat myself up. I'm only giving up misinformation <laughs> 60 hours a week. I really feel guilty. I haven't been spreading hateful misinformation for 80 hours. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I because mean- <laughs> it's already out there. Everybody else will do it, right? Like, I'm sorry. No, but this is the challenge. I think that, you know, when people say, well, why do they want to do that? You have, to, I, I would say that they fall into two camps. One camp that is incredibly greedy and likes power. And the other camp that is just, they're white nationalist racists and have a- Oh yeah, really, so they're better you know, motivated. <laughs> It's at least pure. And then they converge. Right, no. They I really I mean, believe it. <laughs> good for you. But this is but good for you. But this is the but the, the challenge is, is that it's not it bleeds cross borders. So sure. what we saw Well, you're in getting from Colombia. Yeah. You're hearing about the yeah. Right, in Colombia, right. In, 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 Colombia. in Colombia, right? From my uh, my from my family who is otherwise apolitical telling me, "Hey, be careful because this candidate is a lot." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> Gee whiz. Wow. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oy. That's mm-hmm. another way of saying wow. 
<laughs> oh boy. Oh, that's depressing. Okay, yeah. better, nicer, up, upbeat. Let's go up, upbeat. Okay. The people you're registering, that group is just expanding. When I started working and seeing the vision of Voto Latino, it was because we knew that there was going to be a seismic shift, right? Latinos were the, have been the second largest demographic of Americans since 2003, Al. But it wasn't until 2020 that we became the second largest eligible pool of voters. I see. That's what I'm saying. Your your people are are becoming voters. Yeah, exactly. In larger at, at, and larger numbers. In larger and larger. I mean, to give you, I mean, to give you an idea, and this is where you know the statistician in me gets really excited. You know, the mode of whites is 58 years old. The mode of Latinos is 11. Mode is the most. In yeah. other words, if you make a chart of everybody, there are more people that are 11 than any other age. That's the mode. Exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. And the median is where you go to the halfway point of, of the population, right? So there's half the number of people are older and half are younger. Is that the median? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's the average. And so then you have the, the, mean, mean, and the mean. That's the is mean. The average. What you're th- yeah. calling the average. Yeah. These yeah. are all averages. So you, this is what's crazy. So the average <laughs> is thirty is roughly thirty one, and the that's median. That's the mean. That's the mean. Mm-hmm. The average, the mean, and then the median. Is uh is twenty twenty one years old? In other words, half are over twenty one and half are under. Exactly. Okay, and the mode is the most common age. That's eleven. Mm-hmm. And the mean is if you add up all their ages together and divide it by the number of them, you get mm-hmm. uh, what did you say? Twenty one? What? No, no. You uh uh, uh thir- now it's officially thirty. Thirty. The eleven okay. year olds are getting older. <laughs> Okay, but that's the mean. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, so this there, is for guys, everybody for math literacy. <laughs> there are right. th- they're all averages. So, but this is the challenge is that so that's why we started is like so, a million Latinos became a voting age starting in 2016, and that million Latinos coming of voting age isn't going to sunset for over for the next decade or so. And 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 again, and, and it's not just to the coast, right? It's just not it's not just to California or New York. It's everywhere in between. To give you an idea, in Georgia, I went to visit Georgia in 2016. That was the, the reason why I was like, we should do something in Georgia, which we set up for 20, uh, 2018. But I was having a, you know, I was doing a speaking engagement and it was roughly at the time, roughly 3% of the population or 2.5% of the population was uh, eligible to vote. And to make a long story short, it turned out that the classroom was over 20% of Georgian classrooms were Latino under the age of 12th grade. So that's what I was like, wait a second, this is, this is something that's happening everywhere. You know, Ed, uh, John Edwards always talked about his, the mill town when he was running for office, the town that he grew up in, in North Carolina. That same town, when he was running for office, was already 51% Latino. Right. So what's happening in Georgia? What, what, what do you see in Georgia? In Georgia, since the November election, 50,000 young people have turned 18, not just Latino, but African-American and Asian-American. And so we're running a program right now. Uh, we're working in coordination with uh, Fair Fight and the New Georgia Project and registering voters. December 7th is the last day to register to vote. And then we're going to do the exact same thing we did afterwards, which is making sure that people vote early, making sure that we're, we're identifying over 110,000 low propensity Georgian voters that are of Latino descent to get them out to the polls. It's going to be a very tight, close election. Uh, as I shared, one of the things that we do is we explain 
uh, civics to folks. And so some people don't understand that the function of the Senate. And so we're very much explaining in order, if you voted for Joe Biden, which they overwhelmingly did, you need to vote for the Senate so he has people to work with. If you care about health care, vote for him. If you care about you know living wages, if you care about figuring out how to live post-COVID or Im- immigration, go out and vote for the Democratic ticket so that he can have people to, to work with. But it is, it's all teaching right now uh, for, for the community. And look, for everybody listening, uh, this is the finish line. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've been raising money for uh, Unite Here, which is mm-hmm. the ground, a ground operation, big ground operation in Georgia. The ground operation is so important. What you're doing is, is, is so important. So I've been trying to raise money f- for them. And uh, people are going like, you know, I just am exhausted. I gave so much. And, you know, I literally had a guy who is really rich. And he, <laughs> I got this text from him, and he's just like, well, you know, I gave seven figures. That's how hmm. rich he is. He gave seven mm-hmm. figures. And so we're exhausted, really, and we're just, that's it. And I'm just thinking, like, we're two inches from the finish line. Mm-hmm. This is the finish line, and it's the control of the Senate. It's the control of the Senate. So well, and and who likes Mitch McConnell? Let's be honest. Really, <laughs> I, mean, I can tell you this: no one. Right. I'm like, let's get to that. You know, my Republican colleagues didn't like him, so right. And and <laughs> we don't like him, and mm-hmm. so uh, almost no one, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sure his family. I'm sure his family. <laughs> I really like dad. <laughs> Grandpa. Um, well, uh, okay, Maria Teresa, thank you so much as always. We'll uh, look forward to uh, the fourth, number four, when you're on with us again. Oh, thank you so much, Al, oh, for always having such candid conversations and for mobilizing your the folks like only you know how. So thank you. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) Auto Trader.